Hello, everybody, and welcome to the I Can't Help You podcast. My name is Danny Conroy, and I am joined here in the studio by some very special guests and a couple of regulars of our shows. Um, our uh, producer over here, Justin, say hello to everybody, Justin. Hello, everybody. Did you have your breakfast burrito today, Justin? I wish I had my breakfast burrito today. All right, well, we might have to be hooking that up in a little while. Lauren, say hi to everybody. Hey, everybody. Lauren's been doing a ton of behind-the-scenes work, including booking our most recent guest who's here today. Lauren's been very helpful. I want to thank her on the air so that people know how awesome she is, even though Aww. I get all the credit for stuff. Good job, Lauren. Aw, thanks. Yeah, it's nice having all the help. Gold um, star. And I also have, and she's not going to say hi, just so you know, but she's a cat lover and a dear friend of mine, and I've seen probably 100 fish shows with her and her husband, Pete. Brooke Boskov is on the show today. She's here. She's not on the show. Say hello, Brooke. Hi, guys. There she goes. So now she's finally on the air. She's also like the early adopt. I consider her my only fan. I think Brooke is the only person who has listened to every one of my podcasts, I think. That's true. Probably, that's true. So anyway, so it's an honor to have her here as well. We get to go see Fish tonight, so we're very excited about that. And our very special guest, and somebody we've been talking about this for a long time. We've been talking about doing this for a long time. We see each other at the gym. We've known each other. How many years have we known each other, Chris? Gosh, at least 10. At least 10. Probably 11. 11, yeah. 10, 11. I knew you when you were a kid. You're not a kid anymore. Now you have kids and stuff. But anyway, Chris Cole is in the studio with us today. He is the author of The Body of Chris, a wonderful book. And he also has his own podcast, which I hope I'm going to get the guest on sometime because I'd love to be a guest on someone else's show. Uh, and the name of his podcast is Waking Up Bipolar, uh, which if that's not intriguing to you, you are asleep. You're asleep. So let's talk a little bit about it. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You're definitely coming on the show. All right, man. Well, I look forward to that. How have you been? What's going on? I've been so good. I've been so good. It's like life is unfolding. Thanks so much to Aim House. You know, I, I told Danny I'm going to plug Aim House. Y'all just get ready. This is big. This That's is 100% his idea, by the way. It I is. did not ask for that. It is because Aim House was something that totally changed the trajectory of my life, you know, and the work I do today is. Uh, has been profoundly impacted by meeting you. So thank you. Oh, man, yeah. that's really nice to hear. Thank you. So now I'm going to cry, and I'm not going to be able to do this. But th thanks for saying that. I really appreciate that. And that's that's where, uh, you know, not everybody – it doesn't work out for everybody, right? So mm -hmm. when, when it does, that's the stuff that feels so good and makes you feel like – you know, as I say, when we started, like, if we helped one person, it would be worth it. And so when I hear – two people say you're the second now, then I know that it was worth it. And uh, But no, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much for saying that. So tell me about you, man. We, I, I, I want our listeners to know a little bit about a lot of things. I want to cover a few things today, but talk to us a little bit about your book. You know, um, Waking Up Bipolar uh, is the name of the podcast, but the book is called The Body of Chris. Chris, tell us a little bit about, like, what made you write that book? Tell, me, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about your story. Obviously, I know, but... Yeah, definitely. So... There's so much to go into it, and I start when I'm really young in the book, too. Like, some people are surprised. I'm like, I got to start about being, like, you know, unconscious and being a small child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Prior to my conception, I was really thinking it'd be a good idea to have this transformative experience, yes. you know? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I had, I had a lot of issues as a kid, and I think it really comes down to being super sensitive, mm. you know? I don't know if that's... I certainly don't want that to be pathological, but mm. I was a very sensitive kid. I cried a lot. I had this like painfully empathetic heart, mm. and there was all kinds of wacky ways that that showed up in my life. Mm. And the first thing was body image and eating. Sure. You know, I was a young kid. I was like, I was the one that was at the cafeteria, and I'd be like, "Who doesn't want this? Who doesn't want that?" You know, and I'm like. I'm like trying to trade my pretzel sticks for Snicker bars and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Totally. And so that was that was my early experience. I like to have fun and and as I went into adolescence, I really became acutely aware of how much I wanted to be uh, attractive and body image really set in and I had a lot of pain around that. Started using started really finding refuge in alcohol and drugs and and that kind of party scene. When did you start that? When did you start using and drinking? You that was, you know, I, I think I was 12 when my best friends had a birthday party and we d all decided that we would drink. Bust into the parents' liquor cabinet type totally. of thing. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And yeah. it just so happens that my first role model in recovery was my best friend's older brother who hmm. was the one that supplied the alcohol that night. Oh, yeah. wow. 
both the supplier and the solution. Yeah, yeah. That's was... why I'm going into the dispensary business. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. I'm not really. I'm not really. That's, that's called plant medicine that's what, now. Yeah, I'm, I want a full continuum. Like, I want to supply the drugs and help people on the other side. There you go. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Just stop kidding. shop. In the age of Trump, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Everything seems to be fine, <laughs> yeah. right? All right. Sorry about that. But so keep going. So you try alcohol and drugs around 13, 12, 13. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and, you know, I just felt so relieved to know that there was a way that I could not feel like myself or mm. not feel so anxious. I mm. think anxiety was the underlying issue for me. I mean, I was constantly feeling this sort of hypervigilance, like are peop- what are people thinking about me? How mm. are people viewing me? Uh, how how can I change my behavior, modify my appearance, all these types of things? And it was so other-centered. Mm. And I actually, I, I wanted to ask you about the podcast title sure. because, you know, that to me that's about, like, I can't help, I can't help you. Right. Like, to me, um, I, I couldn't satisfy you, right? I couldn't, mm. like, I couldn't be what other people needed me to be. Mm. It was, it was impossible. Mm. And I was like on the brink of just wanting to annihilate myself in order to fit in. Mm. Mm. It was a sensitive thing. It was tough. It was a tough time growing up for you, wasn't it? It was for me too. It was for me too. I relate a lot to that, you know? Mm. Um, And then, and then what happened? How did you, tell me a little bit about where your path went from there. So you got through high school. Totally. So I got through high school and I, I was a little bit of a, a paradox because I was like an honor roll student yeah. and I had this uh, phenomenal GPA and I got a scholarship to the University of Georgia and I was ready to be pre-med like my dad and all mm. this kind of stuff. And so I had this real sort of double life I was leading where it's like I was crushing it Monday through Thursday and then Friday through Sunday, I was just totally torturing my body with uh partying and alcohol and drugs and so it was this real loop-de-loop all the time and I I was getting grounded all the time Mm. in high school Mm. and I sort of told myself like everything will be fine if I can just get to college and my parents aren't such a drag and I don't have to like walk in my house and get breathalyzed (laughs) all this kind of stuff yeah and they actually have a breathalyzer so they had alcohol alka strips or something like oh, that okay. they, they like would the swab my tongue oh wow yeah i mean you could just smell it basically i remember my my parents used to like my mom used to like she like give me uh, a kiss goodnight like oh you know and totally. so i i started like eating onions when i was a kid like i go into the <laughs> we get home <laughs> i take a big bite of an onion i come up and like night mom <laughs> you know well, my my practice was the windy spicy chicken sandwich. Oh, there you go. I would I would hit the hit spicy chicken right, before, yeah. right before walking in the door. Yeah, yeah. But then you get hit with the strips, and you were you were busted. And, yeah, and it was all over. And I and I was even you know I was a mathematician. I had good grades. Mm. I would figure out that if I just got out of school, and if I could make it to the park in like twenty minutes. I could have exactly six shots of vodka with my soda yeah. and have six hours before I had to go home. Wow. So you really planned all this. Oh, out. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, it didn't always work that way, you no, know? No. Because, like, in two hours after the six shots, I'd be like, I think I should have some more. Yeah. You know? Sure. Yeah. So you get through high school like that. How did you end up getting to a place of getting help and doing something yeah. different? Well, in some ways, it was non-consensual, you know? Like, I had a psychotic episode, and that's the premise of the book, is that I felt like I could find so many role models with addictions recovery, and I couldn't really find folks that had had full-blown psychotic episodes and also men that had uh, severe body image issues and body dysmorphia. So I was like... I'm going to just go two birds with one stone here. I'm going to like put it all out there. And in some sense, I, I really wanted to let it all hang out so that I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have to have this negotiation all the time of like, yeah, I'm a person in recovery, but I have this like whole other part of my recovery that I don't get to talk about mm. and feels kind of still secretive, even mm. though I've maybe a number of years sober, all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. But because of that psychotic episode and it was public, it was like, I mean, if you can imagine, I'm in my dorm room 
and I'm telling everybody I'm Jesus, and we're about to start college. You know, it's fall semester. So things haven't really kicked off, and your orientation gift is telling everybody you're Jesus. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So, but talk, I, I'm really curious if you're okay with it. And I Please. know it's explained really well in the book, but tell me a little bit, like, what, what was that like? Like, because you, you, it sounds like you're kind of going through high school. Yes, you're insecure. You've got these things going on. All that stuff is within the realm of most people's, ex- not most people's experience, but certainly mine and a lot right. of people I know a lot, that know. got help and got into recovery early and some body issues, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But tell me about that. Like, I mean, that's an episode, right? That's a bipolar episode. Mm-hmm. And it usually comes on, correct me if I'm wrong, right? But around that time, 17, 18, 19, in that yeah. area. Mm-hmm. Talk, can you talk about that? Yes. Oh, I could talk about it for a very long time. I don't know if we have enough time to say everything. But, but what was it like? How did, so, tell me about being Jesus. So let me just take a breath and feel into being Jesus Christ for the first time. It was very profound, right? So what happened to me is I was drinking a lot. and I was, So I was having a lot of mood instability that can be expected, like binge drinking and, and staying up all night on Red Bull and cocaine and all these types of things. But what happened was... The, the precipitating factor, and with bipolar episodes, there usually is a precipitating factor that's some major stressor, whether mm. it's trauma, what, whether it's trauma, you know, some people talk about unrequited love. Mm. So especially around that time of development, yeah. um, people will maybe be in love or in maybe severe infatuation yeah. and find out that it's not reciprocated and yeah. it's just like huge existential crisis and... You know, for me, it was grief. I I lost a best friend to a driving accident when he was sixteen. Mm. He wasn't drinking; he was um, he was speeding, mm. and so th- there was this really core wound for me. And not only was that a really painful grief process, but because I grew up in such a I grew I went to Catholic high school, I went to Episcopalian middle school, I grew up in the church. That was the first experience where I felt like, what is God and where's my friend now, mm. you know? Mm. And that was that was a core existential aspect of my development mm. where I'm really questioning and I'm both wanting spirituality mm. and I'm also feeling really uncomfortable with the way it seems to look. Mm-hmm. And and like what kind of God, right? Yeah. What kind of God would take my friend? What yes. kind of God? It, this doesn't fit into that right. equation, you know? Yeah. And I, I actually have said this before, but I, I feel like the first spiritual question, like when you're on the one, you know, I hate this, like the path, right? I think there's mm-hmm. multiple, multiple paths, mm-hmm. but you're on a spiritual path. Most of the time, the first question is Why? Yeah. Like if you're if if you got your shit together and everything's going pretty well, mm-hmm. it's like I'm doing great. I got all the answers. Life is flowing. I feel good and relatively euphoric. Now let's get into spirituality. It just doesn't work that way. Right. It's like it usually comes from a place of emptiness and suffering, which leads us to seeking, especially if it's that which is a little bit different than the path that was put in front of us by our parents or whomever, right? Yeah. So it sounds like that was kind of going on for you, big time. Yeah. And I mean, I remember, you know lighting joints at the grave of my friend Mm. and just having these sort of like these uh i guess spiritual conversations with him and i'd be i'd be having dreams about him Mm. and i'd be wondering if he was like partying with jesus and all Mm. this kind of stuff Mm. and so what happened was right when i went to school i was pledging a fraternity i was i mean now like It'd be hard to imagine me in a Southern fraternity environment, but that's how I was. I mean, that's I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was so into it, and I was like the uh, budding frat star, I like to say. Yeah, and I imagine you were really popular because you've always been a really nice guy and very charismatic. Yeah, you've had a lot of friends, right? I always had a lot of friends, and I I think that having a lot of friends and negotiating that with the kind of perfectionism and social anxiety is a really wacky way to mm. be in the world, you know? Yeah, totally. Like I'm going to be extroverted and incredibly anxious, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so there, so I needed a lot of self-soothing around that. I always felt like I needed to take the edge off. Mm-hmm. I always felt overextended. Mm-hmm. But what happened was the fraternity I was pledging, there was someone who died, and he died suddenly and unexpectedly in a boating accident. And what happened was I'm at this like keg party and we're kicking off school. 
and slowly like I start to see people start to cry and and the first experience I have is it's visual I'm just seeing people break down and console each other and I'm like what the hell is going on you know and I and then I see who was a dear friend because he was also a kind of like big brother figure to my friend who passed and it was and he was a big part of why I was pledging that fraternity to begin with I saw him start to cry and I went and I f- tried to find out what was going on and they told me and it just like tapped this deep inner well of sadness that I I don't think I ever was able to work through partially because of drugs and alcohol partially because I don't think the community and the adults that were in my life understood how much I was suffering around my friend's death mm-hmm. and so I, I just started crying and everybody assumed I was grieving in the same way other people were. But it was something a lot different for me. I was I was grieving like the fact that people die at all. Right, right. And the yeah. inevitability that I'm going to die. Right, sure. And I spent all night uh, being unable to find any reprieve with alcohol. Mm. It was It was the first night that I remember drinking and feeling like I couldn't get intoxicated. Couldn't it was numb it very out. bizarre. Yeah. 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 And I couldn't sleep. And the next morning I rebounded in a in a really intense way where I went from like walking through the streets at like five AM with the sun rising and weeping to seeing one of my dear friends for consolation. And during that we went to Waffle House. In the South, Waffle House is a big deal. Yeah. So we went to Waffle There's one House. There's one in Longmont too. There's one in Longmont. Yeah, I just I just talked to some people who went to the one in Longmont. I knew but anyway. I, I knew I loved Longmont. Yeah, you exactly. know, I'm moving to Longmont. Well, there you go. Very exciting. There you go. So we go to Waffle House. He tries to cheer me up, and he does. And by the end of our meal, I'm feeling so euphoric. I'm talking about how we're just starting school. We can be anything we want. I could be the president of the United States. We could, you know, I was having these huge visions of like what's possible for our lives. Like, like this is like a couple of hours after feeling like the darkest that you've ever felt, right? Yeah. Like that sunrise Completely. walk and feeling so down. Then all of a sudden you're at the Waffle House and you're like sky high. Completely. Did you have any awareness at that time that like, wow, this, uh, this, is, this rebound is pretty extreme? No, and I think, it, I think part of it was because I was so disconnected from my baseline yeah, 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 because yeah, of yeah. using. Right. You right. know, it, it was just like, whatever. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. This is just the next trip. Yeah. And, uh, and so my friend encouraged me to go home, and I'm like, hell no, I'm not going home. My parents won't let me come back to school, you know? Right, right. And so I agree with him that I'm going to go back to the dorm room and sleep. I run into a girlfriend who just happened to be the person I felt completely in love with, and that certainly was exacerbated in that state of euphoria and who knows all the brain chemicals that are being released, right. <laughs> dumping into my right. blood and all right. that kind of stuff. But is this like a manic? Is this are you yeah. This is a manic episode. Now. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, and I, I say that so people understand because I think there are a lot of people, like in our world, we kind of understand this stuff. Uh-huh. And I'm saying they're going, oh, okay. No, yeah. Okay. But like, there are a lot point. of people really no idea to have never talked to anybody who had right. bipolar disorder. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the closest thing I can relate to it is the psychedelic experience, yeah. except non consensual and non time constrained. Mm. Mm. You know? So it's like, it's like, um, having the psychedelic experience and not knowing you're having it and then also not knowing when the hell it's going to end because mm. there's no I kept thinking it was going to end it just never it just kept not ending right and anyway so I had this huge euphoria and what happened was my senses were so heightened it was like the sun I never felt the sun as warm I never had really experienced the breeze like that. The flowers looked like they were glowing, and the I could even smell their fragrance in a way. And I felt like so poetic and so expansive. And at a certain point, I just I was I realized how kind of lost and bliss I was. Mm. And then I started I kind of I guess my rational mind came online a little bit. And I started thinking, well, did I take anything, you know? Mm. Like, no, Mm. I didn't take anything. And all of a sudden, it started snowballing, and I was like, well, this is what God feels like. Like, certainly, I'm Jesus. And and from the the religious lens I grew up in, the person who, the only person who's like, 
directly experiencing God is yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so I like to say it was the most rational deduction I made the entire day. Well, I mean, it actually does. As I'm sitting here listening to it, two things come to mind. One, that sounds awesome. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like it sounds awesome to be like the, I mean, you know, not the other side of it, but like the, the you know, the birds are chirping and the sky and the colors are so green and you're feeling all this empowerment and like, like why would, like that's, that feels good, right? Like oh, who yeah. who wouldn't want to experience that? Mm-hmm. And then if that's coming out of nowhere, of course, any you know, our mind's gonna go like this is otherworldly, yeah, otherworldly. So I agree with you. The deduction makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it and I like you know part of my work in the world today, and part of the reason I have waking up bipolar as a podcast at the intersection of spirituality and bipolar disorder and all these things that go into that is because it was otherworldly. Mm. Like there's no, you know, I I spent so many years questioning, was it a spiritual awakening or was it a psychotic episode? And I finally was like, that division, that binary, that dichotomy is an unnecessary one. And I think it does a disservice to people who have these experiences. Mm. Because what happens is I walk into the hospital and instead of feeling like I'm one with God, I'm always all of a sudden told I'm broken and mm. that my brain's totally messed up. And, and, and all the things that go with that. Probably too, right? like yeah, and I'm gonna get my pants stripped off right. and I'm gonna get an injection right. and I'm gonna get locked in a padded room. Yeah. yeah. And I'm gonna be told I can't leave. Yeah. And I'm gonna be estranged from the people that I need to see I need to see their faces. I love them. I need them. How'd that happen? How did you get to the hospital from there? Yeah, so what ha- well, so my parents were pretty keen on my drug use and drinking. Sure. So I got home. So they're thinking this is just a drug and alcohol problem. Yeah, so well, first of all, I got arrested. That's okay. the that's oh, okay. the big part. Oh, so that. So I was in the dorm room, I'm telling everybody how they're going to heal the world with math and what their what <laughs> what their role is going to be in the new earth and all this stuff. And the police come in, the campus police. And I just I actually saw these campus police earlier that morning. I was crying through a parking lot and I thought, "Oh shit, they're going to arrest me." Yeah. And they didn't, mm. you know. They were like, "Oh, you lost your friend. Like, go go rest up. Like, mm. find somebody that uh, you can you can feel connected to." Mm. So they were really supportive. And those same two guys came in, and I'm like wildly manic and uh, telling everybody I'm Jesus. And what happened was they walked through the sliding doors. You know, they the glass doors open. I see them walk in, and I lay down flat on the ground and put my hands behind my back because I was like, "They're." I just knew they were there for me. Mm. So they they take me into the car and I was so compliant and I, and I they weren't quite sure what I had done that they had a conversation in front of me in the car where they said Why are we arresting this kid? Yeah, they said what should we do with him? Right. And they right. really asked each other that. And I'm sitting in the back with handcuffs. So they weren't even necessarily coming to they were probably coming to like a wellness check or whatever. They weren't really coming to arrest you. You just assumed they were. I just assumed they yeah. were. Yeah. yeah. And so I, and so they t- they say, let's just take him in. Mm. And when they said, let's just take him in, something just like flipped in, in my psyche. And I was, and by the time I got to the jail, mm. I was convinced that they were the Pharisees taking me to my crucifixion. Wow. And this is real for you. This is like, the like most that's real. Exactly what it was this is like. like Mel Gibson movie real. Yeah. You're you not talking, I mean? this, this isn't is, a metaphor for you. This is, no. this was your reality. This is like, I am Jesus. I just realized it. Now they're crucifying me so that I can't fulfill my mission. And it's a preemptive, like I didn't even get to have my Sermon on the Mount, right, you know? Right. And so I'm having this, I have like basically two two deep, deep terrors. One is that I'm gonna die. Right. And the other is that I'm not gonna fulfill my life. Right. Right. One of those is true. You're gonna die. Right. Yeah. I'm going to die. Yeah. I'm going to die. And be, and because I'm going to die, I'm not going to be able to do what God oh, gotcha. sent me to do. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And that's, that's going I mean. on at that time in a yeah. big way. Yeah. yeah. And so they put me in the jail cell. And, all, you know, all of this is so disorienting, right? So, mm. like, I'm already disoriented. And now I'm arrested. Now I'm, like, you know. And they're telling me to shut up. And you're they're 18. Me, Don't you're 18 talk. years old right now, right? 18 years old. Yeah. 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 They're telling me not to talk, you know, be quiet. They put me in my own um, solitary cell for, you know, the crazy people. Mm. And it's, um, and I just, I remember like, I just started, I was like ridiculously tripping out, you know, and I start tapping on the walls and I feel like I'm making music and I'm like Morse coding to the angels to come save me. I strip off all my clothes and I start demanding they come look at my body to see that I'm neither man nor woman and that I'm God. 
and it's um and I also need them to like bear witness to my nakedness because I was so insecure about my body. So th- so it's like this intersection of the worst grief I felt this um you know something that I lean into in the book but I won't hear is how in love I felt with this this girl at the time that mm didn't love me back mm. so that's happening at the same time you got you got grief you got unrequited love yeah and you got chemicals and, and i got drug and use and chemicals yeah. and extreme body dysmorphia mm. you know mm. am i a man mm. and and do i look like a man mm. you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all that stuff i was a late bloomer so i had all this all these issues around my sexuality genitalia mm. etc sure and so this was happening, and then they get me. Uh, so they come out and they point. They point like what might have been a taser, but I thought it was a gun. It looked like a gun. Right. And they tell me they're going to shoot me yeah. if I uh, try to resist or something. And so I get, and they have me climb into a chair. They strap me down, and some guy comes out the back with a lab coat and injects me. And when he injects me, I'm convinced it's lethal injection, and that I and that I was dying. They're killing you. Yeah, yeah. they were killing me. Yeah. And um, and like I say in the book, I woke up uh, in about three hours in fulfillment of the scripture, and uh, I had underwear on this time, you know, and I, it was like being reborn. It's like oh my, and but I was still I was still psychotic, I was still delusional, I was still manic, and the way I got to the hospital was I went home, and like I said, my parents were really keen on my drug use. So they assumed I was using. Yeah, they just assumed it was a bad trip. Yeah, they or... assumed I was tripping out yeah. and they yeah. just needed me to come down. My dad even yeah. took out a video camera because he wanted to show me what I was like on drugs. Yeah. And I, of course, thought this is going to be great footage for, you know, well, sure. w- for the world to know that Absolutely. Jesus has come. Right, right. It's like, because so... the first one wasn't, t- the first revolution wasn't televised. This one will be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the revolution will indeed be televised. Yeah. On a, on a home camcorder. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I started, I started thinking, this is it, you know. And, um, and so I had all these wacky experiences, mystical experiences, and eventually my parents were like, wow, he's, he's not coming down. We got to take him to the psych hospital. Yeah. And so- This is like days after this now? This like was days about, you're at home I would say to... it was a, probably about two or three days okay. that I was at home. Got it. And just- Yeah. Just, I parents mean, I was so blissed out. Like some people get manic and they're violent and aggressive right, and, right. and they're super agitated. Not you. No, I was like- let me bless your forehead, yeah, you know, let me, let me wash your feet. You're walking you know? in the sunshine I'm, of the spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, yeah. big time. Yeah. And I like don't even exist. Like, mm. and, and, and wow, what a relief. Mm. What a relief to not be me. Mm. And so I get to the hospital and it was just really wacky, you know, like I, I remember this one nurse and he was, he was kind, but I didn't really trust him. And at a certain point, after a number of days of being med- heavily medicated, and I would even say violently medicated, um, he he was like checking in with me around my delusion, and I remember he said, "So do you th- still think you're Jesus?" You know, and I was like, "Well, kind of, I kind of do," you know. But by that time, I was starting to rework it. I yeah. was like, "Okay, so I'm not like literally Jesus, but I'm." Coming in contact with what Jesus came in contact with. Well, right, and, and, and you're kind of editing your pitch because you know exactly. some shit's gonna get you locked up, right? So, <laughs> right. So all this is fun. all this is is in the air, yeah. Right, right. And I remember saying sort of, and he was like, and he the way he challenged me with the intervention, and mind mm. you, we're in we're in Georgia, you know, so this is like probably standard. he probably wasn't Europa trained. No, he right. was not Europa trained. Gotcha. So this is probably a pretty standard uh, idea. But he said, well, you know, the second uh, Jesus comes in the second coming riding a white horse down from heaven, something like that. And it was a script. He was quoting scripture in some way. And I just remember looking at him and being like, man, like, I'm the crazy one. And this person, mm. this is the best they got. Mm. And I was like, this guy wouldn't know Jesus if he came and slapped him in the face. Mm. That's like, that's how that's intensely I felt, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? And that was this sort of core confusion for me. Okay, so here's this like spiritual experience that to me matches up with the kind of biblical mythology that I grew up with. These archetypal upheavals, et cetera, that that are so outlined. 
And I thought, if that's not biblical, if that's not an experience of God, then there isn't one. Mm. And mm. that dichotomy was set up where mm. it was like, okay, there is this complete division between brains and brain chemistry and the ability for chemistry to alter perception and experience. And then there's this huge, huge spiritual existential question of, is there something beyond the body? Mm. Mm. And I wrestled with that for many years and I joined a yoga cult and I was like, you know, still using and all this kind of, I was just a total wild man for probably three good years. And uh, I think I accomplished two years of college. So it wasn't without any success, but it was, it was a total mess. Mm. And then finally I hit bottom Yeah. and I had gone on a Knowles trip which is Na- National Outdoor Leadership School. And that was the first month-long re- uh, removal of alcohol and substances that I had ever had. And it was also the first month-long submersion into the wilderness. Yeah. And I was on fire. I was like, wow, you know, like I actually can be okay. Yeah. And I actually can have a different life. The now, problem is this, is this experience there, just so, so I check in. Yeah. Is that the experience there are you now in a manic state or you're saying no this was kind of like more of a middle place where i'm actually experiencing i hate this word too reality in a different a more shared reality is that kind of what you're saying if that yeah and i think i think most of all just neurological ease and balance mm-hmm. and and regulation not just regu- yeah, yeah. yeah 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 and yeah. so i'm in you know in the it's so you're eating clean food. You're exercising. Yeah. You're like you're you're feeling nature under your feet. And like I don't think folks even realize how stimulating it is to be in the way our society is constructed. Right. Right. You know, to wake up with the sun. Right. To feel darkness come over and and be like, well, I gotta go to bed. What else am I gonna do? You right. know, wander right. around in the dark. Like right. these nature is so unbelievably healing. Yeah. The problem was I left Knowles and I went to a keg party. Yeah, well, you yeah, know. you're thirsty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but that remi- that let me know that that there was something so healing about nature. And then when I was ready to get sober, and I I for the last time was like trying to go back to school, and I spent all my it always was worse. So this time I tried to go back to school after working a year at Starbucks and taking time off, and I had another psychotic episode and all this stuff. I tried to go back to school and I spent all my allowance and all my funds on cocaine and alcohol. And I, I, I missed two or three classes, whatever the max was where you had to fail out or, or, or you couldn't get credit for the class, I should say. And I just was like, what am I doing? Mm. This is... I. And I was like, I don't know if I'm bipolar. I don't know if... Had you been diagnosed that? Did so anybody I had slap been, that on I you? I had been diagnosed. Yeah. And and here's what's a little messed up is I was diagnosed because, well, first of all, you can't be diagnosed if substances are involved. So I I didn't qualify that initial break. I didn't qualify for bipolar. It was just a psychotic episode with substance use. However, once an antidepressant threw me into a manic episode three weeks later, Mm. I qualified because the di- the it way the di- system it's yeah like the way the, the diagnostic boxes. yeah the yeah. way the diagnostic system is set up is um, if it's a if it's a prescription med that's like an antidepressant that that doesn't count right if it's our drugs you know? it's legit if it's your drugs it's not right? right it's kind of the thing so I saw I saw just the utter hypocrisy and confusion of that and then so so I always struggled like am I you know, was it was it substances that did it? Was it uh, mm-hmm. that I actually do have bipolar disorder? Mm-hmm. All this kind of stuff. And what I decided when I hit bottom, going uh, that it was July twenty fourth, two thousand seven. That's my sobriety date. And we were um, we were watching HBO on a Sunday night, and they don't sell alcohol on Sundays in Georgia. At least they didn't at that time. They might now. And we ran out of alcohol, and some of my friends were mad at me because I drank most of it. And I couldn't sleep, and I just I stayed up all night praying and writing, and I just thought, you know, this is it. This is the end of the rope. I'm not happy using, and I'm not happy not using. That's the moment. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I, I called home to my parents. I said, I'm coming home. We're going to have to have a talk. I'm sorry. I drive home and, uh, and I just tell them, like, I know I've had a lot of issues, but like, I, for the, this is the first time in my life where I feel like I really want it for myself. Mm. And I begged them, you know, please send me to rehab. And they, of course, their first thing was like, are you on your meds? Yeah, of course. And I'm like, hell no. Right. And I'm not on my meds and I don't want to be on my meds and I need to find out I need to find out what it's like to even be in a sober body before right. I start taking these meds again. Right. And they were terrified, I you bet. know. I yeah, mean, they're afraid you're parents freak going out. through psychotic episodes with their kids. Sure. Uh it, you it's get not, that now as a dad, right? Oh, like, gosh, like, yeah, it'd be horrifying. I don't yeah. think I go a day without imagining something right. horrific happening right. to my sons and right. being like, Damn, right. you know. Right. It's hard. So you go to rehab, where'd you go? Yeah. So I went to Wilderness Quest, yeah, and oh, I was right. so right. oh my god, Larry Wells. Larry, if, if any yeah, of the egg yeah, consultants yeah. are listening, or people that are have been in the business for a long time, <laughs> they will be. They're listening. Yeah, Larry Wells is a uh, what a magical man. I mean this this dude was so believed so deeply in not only people's ability to heal, but also the power of nature to heal them, and I was so blessed to get into Wilderness Quest in what was a, what was kind of coming to the end of Wilderness Quest. Mm. And they were doing stuff that I don't even think it'd be legal. I don't even know if you're allowed to do this anymore. We Probably did this. not. Wilderness we did, Therapy has a yeah. – today there's a lot more regulations and kind of agreement on stuff. I think it was a it was wild, wild west there for quite yeah. a while. But yeah. We did – there was this one thing that I wish everybody, every kid could do. Mm. We did this um, moonlit night hike. Mm. Where we hiked all through the night without any flashlights or anything, just with the moon, and just with the moon, and just with your mind dancing in paranoia, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. every boulder looks like it's a mountain lion, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. know, every every breeze that moves a tree branch, mm-hmm. you think there's something coming at you, mm-hmm. and what a it, meta- what a metaphor though for was, everything oh else, right? Gosh, it was probably the mo- the single most powerful experience I've ever had. That's amazing. Yeah. And so I just was, I just could not have been more satisfied and, and just overjoyed and appreciative of my time there. And so then uh, when I'm at Wilderness Quest, uh, my therapist gives me a folder and it's like a folder for a few different programs. And one of them is Amehouse. And, and he says, you know, it suggested that you do some kind of transitional program because yeah, you're having this great experience and you feel like you're never going to use again, but stuff's going to be hard, mm. you know, and li- real life's going to hit you again. Mm. And I felt like, no way, you know, right. I'm like, I'm like you Superman at this yeah, point, course, you know, yeah. I'm like, I, I'm at one with nature. Mm. I'm like cosmically uh, aligned and all mm. this kind of stuff. Mm. And I get to Aim House, and it doesn't take me a week before I'm pissed, you sure. know. And I'm mad at everybody. We're good at we're good at that, <laughs> <laughs> right, Lauren? <laughs> they call it the pink cloud, right? Right. And when that bursts, it's ugly sometimes. Yeah, they call yeah. it. Yeah, and and but you know, I was so blessed because some of the people I really looked up to there, mm. they they told me something that I'll never forget, and I tell everybody I can. They said recovery is going to be either easy, hard, or hard easy. Mm. You're either going to do the easy thing, and it's going to be hard later, mm. or you're going to lean in. You're going to do the hard work, mm. and it's going to be easier and pay off later. Mm. And I just, for whatever reason, I was ready to hear that. And everything that came up, I was like, okay, this sucks. Mm. But like, if I can do this, Mm. then I have a beautiful life waiting for me. And Mm. and look, every hero we ever have has these dark nights of the soul, these these, uh, moments of being lost. Jesus Christ himself had the desert. Of course. And the lost years. And I just was like, this is me, you know, and this is what needs to happen. And. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. What a journey. What a journey. Um, and so tell us a little bit about your life today. Like, and, and, and one of the things I'm interested in, cause a lot of people like, do you, do you still have episodes? Do you get, do you get manic? Do you get, yeah. you know, and how do, how do you work with it today with the awareness? Totally. You know I mean? Obviously being sober helps a lot. You're not yeah. messing with, you know, putting a lot of chemicals in your body. Yeah. Well, that's huge. Right. That's a big deal. That's huge. And, and a lot of people with bipolar never get there because right. they're kind of chasing that and trying to regulate with yeah. something else. 
And you know, part of part of the reason that I'm so passionate about being out and loud and yeah. even proud as yeah. bipolar right. is because through that recovery journey, I was actually able to manage without medication and and I was sober for 5 years before I took a medication. Hmm. And this is what's really tough tough for uh people to wrestle with. Yeah. It's like you know, when you've been through the ringer, especially with uh, alcohol and drugs, mm-hmm. and you come out the other side of that, like for me, I had a really high tolerance for pain. Mm. You know, mm. I had a really high tolerance mm. for it. And I know there's a lot of people that are sober and they're they're not necessarily white knuckling it because they're working a program, but mm. but it's hard. They're not happy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's hard to find joy in a sustainable way and all yeah. those things. And so, and so anyways... What happened was the stress of life kept getting bigger and bigger. And I think because I'm so blessed and fortunate and and frankly privileged to have so many resources in my life, I didn't have to really have that rubber meets the road experience until I was married, mm. working full time, mm. thinking about kids, thinking mm. about a mortgage, mm-hmm. and I couldn't keep up. Mm. And... That's when I was like, okay, I have to find a way to make this work. To make even things out a little bit. Yeah, and I didn't want to. You have anything? Well, I saw you light up over there, and I had a feeling that you <laughs> – intuitively, I thought you had a question, and I don't know if you do or not. But. Um, well, I have. Well, I do have one comment about, um, about doing a moonlight hike, and I have to say it was one of the more terrifying experiences I've ever had. I did have a headlamp, uh, but I have to say that – we were hiking um you can't really see my hands but i'd say that sometimes the trails it was on cliffs and i'd say the trails were maybe like the paths were maybe i don't know three feet wide not big not big at all and the and i mean one wrong step and possibly some of them maybe you could die but I, i i definitely felt that way and I have to say that it was definitely one of the more powerful experiences because also it's the idea of not knowing when it's going to end. And we were just hiking up and up and we were been hiking for roughly like 12 hours. Actually, I had no idea because there's no sense of time. Right. You only had, The only time you really had was like the moon. I, I learned when I was in the wilderness, I learned how to tell time by the position of the sun. Mm. And yeah, that was definitely one of the more powerful experiences because it really is about being in the moment, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Well, all the wilderness uh, therapists and program owners out there, you gotta keep up. You gotta keep doing those night hikes. They're they're <laughs> super super important. I've heard that a lot from yeah. from people. So thank you for that, Lauren. And what do you? So you've had kids now. You and yeah. Taylor are married. I know Taylor. I remember when you two came and were. Taylor, Taylor's yeah, that was a that was a little bit. Taylor was working. You were both working at Aim House at the time, I think. Yeah, and, yeah, and we were both working at Aim House. We're very sweet. I almost felt like the old uh, parent who was getting a blessing. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember whether it was Taylor. I think it was Taylor who came in and said, "I got to tell you something." And I'm like, "Oh, somebody died. This is bad." And I'm dating Chris, and I was like, "Beautiful. I love you both. This is great. It wasn't a big deal." Um, yeah, yeah, she was. She <laughs> likes to follow the rules, you know. She yeah. was a little nervous about that. Yeah, she's yeah. one of the all-time greats. Uh, she's, she's hopefully, uh, hopefully, she'll be listening to this. And Taylor, we we still miss you at Aim House. You were awesome. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I love you, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, so I went back and I worked at Wilderness Quest uh, yeah. during the summers as I finished up Naropa University, and yeah. I, and that's the other thing. I wouldn't be at Naropa University without Aim House. I went to Aim House. And met these unbelievable therapists, yeah. many of whom were Naropa trained or at least Naropa influenced. Yeah. And I was like, wow, like this is what I want to do with that's my cool. life, you know, and what do cool. I have to do? And that's a tricky thing because a lot of people get in recovery and they're like, yeah, I want to be like, I want to help others. Yeah, I want to yeah. help others. And it's like, well, hold on, bro. Right. You know, right. right. But yeah, I, but what's different? But what's different? Not to cut you out, but like what's different is, is your, and this is why I say to everybody, if your healing continues, and you continue, one continues to do their own work, then absolutely, you're going to make a great healer. If, if, if the delusion that you've arrived someplace and that other, you know, that I can, 
that I, well, this is the answer to your question, that I can actually help you, mm-hmm. that's a delusion. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely a delusion. Now, what, I, what I can do, what any therapist can do, this is to answer your question. I've said yeah. it a million times in here. And the only reason the show's named this, and I know some of you hate the name of the show, but that's all right. I can't help you, but I can create situations where you're more likely to take that opportunity for yourself. So it's not a, it's not an abduction of resp- abduction isn't that kidnapping? It's not a <laughs> uh, absolving or I don't know the word. But it's not like letting go of responsibility. I have a responsibility to try to create that. I'm just really well aware of that. In my mind, it's delusional to think I I help you. Like even in your situation, I'm so happy the way that that things turned out, and it's had tons to do with the opportunities that you took and the attitude you took towards it and the therapists that were there at the right moment and a moonlight height that came before that and all these things. So I'd be really grandiose and narcissistic to think I had anything to do with that other than, you know, somehow my own path of grief and healing and all this stuff decided to, didn't even decide, was given sort of the opportunity from the universe or whatnot to do Aim House. Mm -hmm. And I accepted the invitation, Mm -hmm. you know. But beyond that, I'm really clear that I don't, I don't have that power. I wish I had that power. If I had it, I'd use it all the time. Yeah. Actually, that's not true. I'd probably bottle it and I'd sell it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think I think the power to alter the causes and conditions for people to help themselves is is what's most important. Mm. And so I think that's a that's spot on. You yeah. know, like we. I even think right now, like with the opioid crisis and like whether or not there should be safe houses and all this stuff, and I'm like. The issue, the issue, and the way the way like lawmakers and policymakers are looking at it is, are we turning a blind eye to criminal activity and stuff? And it's like, well, I don't think we're turning a blind eye at all. It's like, can we actually reach out a hand and turn our heart I toward people who are suffering? Yeah, man. And that know? people didn't choose to be there. It's like people. It's like it's so unless no. you've been, unless you've been hospitalized, unless you've had mental health disorders, substance use disorders, all that, you don't get that nobody. Nobody, nobody nobody sits there in kindergarten and goes, I'm going to be in a hospital <laughs> and I'm going to wear a straight jacket and I'm going to have a substance use disorder and then my parents freak out and go to jail and be in the back of a car. Nobody, yeah. right? So it doesn't, again, it's not like you take responsibility away from people. You got to be responsible for that, but only when you have the, the amount of information to make those kind yeah. of choices and, and to have the resources. And we're, we are privileged, right? Yeah. Like same, same for myself and all of us in this room, we're relatively privileged to have resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, in my own opinion, and the way you keep that is that you, and you have, it's a, you, you commit yourself to the service that was able to be there for you for others mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form, you know, yeah. without hopefully losing yourself in that process. Um, I love hearing about your journey, man. And it really is a hero's journey. You know, I don't know how much Campbell you've gotten into or mm-hmm. what whatnot, but, but you really look at the whole thing. And, and tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. What are you doing professionally? What's going yeah. on? Well, so the big thing, and, and yeah, part of that, part of giving back is like, is whether it's the Bible or Spider-Man, right. with great power comes great responsibility, right? 100%. And so uh, the podcast to me is was born out of my coaching work. Yep. I really saw that there was a need for private coaching that would help people navigate the services that are very intimidating. It's, yeah. it's unbelievably challenging to sit with a psychiatrist for 15 minutes and talk about what you know, what's going on, what you need, what you're not getting, how you feel about the meds, all this kind of stuff. Um, psychotherapy, I think, is brilliant for healing, and yet, and yet, there's a there's a little bit of a disconnect as far as like life planning and goal setting, yeah. and and the the more positive aspect of like, well, where do you really want to be going, right you know, on. and and how does that look day to day or week to week or whatever? But the then the podcast was like. I actually don't want to wait for people to hire me. I want to just like start broadcasting these really important ideas, these right really on. important discussions. So I yeah. did that. Wrote the book. I'm I'm presenting um, I'm presenting at a conference called Assist A C I S T E about spiritual transformation, cool. initiatory crisis, and I'm the model I'm working with right now as far as academically and trying to help people get their mind around some of this stuff is called the Mad Triangle. And it's this whole thing about helping people self-locate and be empowered 
in the intersections of trauma, insight, and diversity and where nice. they're located in those. Cool. So I, I'm in my last year in, at Naropa's graduate program. Oh, my gosh. So I'm already a Naropa You darling. got some initials behind your name here. That's soon. right. Get yeah. some initials and, and be able to and, – and I think, too, like I don't want – I don't want to be a change agent in a field that I'm not a part of. Right, right. And so that's why I'm like, it's important for me to have the clin- the real complete clinical training yeah. so that I can really pull people in instead of just call them out. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, no, it adds legit to it. And you've already got the heart and you got the story and you got the spirit. So, you know, you've got it. You got all the tools. Um, will you come back on the show again some other time? Yeah, and you got to come online. I would love to. Anytime. You let me know. I'm, I'm happy to do it. It is such a pleasure to have you in the studio. And I, I don't mean this in a, you know, take it for what it's worth. I'm really proud of you. I'm really, really proud of you, man. And I, I, you've done us all proud. And I, it's great to see, like, what's happening and, and, and the way that your life is continuing and, 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 and being a parent and, and, and bringing some of that healing to the world. And, you know, I'm not so sure, you know, it's a fine line between madness and sanity. And I'm not so sure personally, both in my own experience and hearing the things that you say that some of those things that happen early on are actually visions for what's to come. It's just kind of presented to us in a pretty confusing, you know, matrix. And then unworking all of that stuff and seeing it doesn't necessarily make something true or untrue. So be careful out there, people, when you label things crazy, because it's not necessarily crazy. It's actually visions that are coming to light in various ways, shape and forms that hopefully won't take place in the form of self-harm and harming other people, you know? So we're all crazy as far as I'm concerned. We live on this planet for one thing. Um, That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I I love that because like untangling ego from the delusion ends up being insight, you know? 100%, 100%. It's great to have you here, man. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. And I just want to say I'm proud of you too. Thanks, brother. Appreciate that. This has been the I Can't Help You podcast. Thank you for listening, Lauren. Thank you. Brooke, Thanks. it's been great having you in the studio. And Justin, as always, my man, thank you so much. Thank you, Danny. All right. It's been a great program. appreciate uh, Chris being here. Uh, just a quick plug for Chris. So the book we were referencing, which I believe is available on Amazon still, right, mm-hmm. is The Body of Chris. Not Body of Chris. The Body of Chris. It's got an awesome picture of him with his ink on there. Uh, are you like that? Are you like, I don't know. I'm doing the, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm you're doing doing the communion thing. pose with yeah. my hands folded. Yeah. It's really cool. It's a cool cover, and he's on that. And then also your podcast to listen to that is Waking Up Bipolar. Where can people find that? So wakingupbipolar.com is the quickest way, but it's on. you can search Waking Up Bipolar on iTunes okay. and be quick, yeah. Sweet, sweet. All right, well, we'll have you back on again. This was a lot of fun. Say hi to Taylor and the kids for me, okay? Will do. All Say right, hi to May and the kids. I will. Thanks for listening, everybody.